interplanetary helicopters and Sophia's new eyes. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Ingenuity helicopter had a Wright Brothers moment on Mars after performing the first powered flight on another planet. It's the first of many planned helicopter missions to other worlds. So what are engineers learning from the test on Mars? UCF's Mike Kinzel is working on NASA's Dragonfly mission, a robotic helicopter heading to Saturn's moon Titan, and joins the show to talk about lessons learned from Ingenuity. Then, a flying telescope is getting a new pair of eyes. The Sophia Observatory is a telescope that flies into the stratosphere on a modified Boeing 747SP. It's getting new detectors that allow it to study magnetic fields in distant galaxies four times faster than its current rate. So what does this mean for astronomy and the future of the observatory? Dr. Margaret Meixner joins the program for the latest. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Central Florida listeners, we've got a great event coming up on May 22nd at the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts. Join me, Brendan Byrne, and a panel of scientists and engineers as we break down the latest videos, images, and sounds from Mars, courtesy of NASA's Perseverance rover. WMFE's Bringing Mars to Earth is an outdoor event with reserved seating and socially distanced pods. Tickets and event information at frontyardfestival.org. NASA's Ingenuity helicopter is exceeding expectations and paving the way for future interplanetary aircraft. One of the next missions in the pipeline is Dragonfly, a robotic helicopter heading to Saturn's moon Titan. Work on the Dragonfly began before Ingenuity's flight, but engineers are looking to the Mars mission for inspiration and insight. To talk more about the plan for Dragonfly, we're joined by Mike Kinzel, professor of engineering at the University of Central Florida. Mike, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. So I'm sure you've got your eyes on Mars. Um, what, is, what have been your thoughts uh, seeing uh, the first interplanetary helicopter take flight? I think it's really exciting to see it just, you know, a different mechanism to explore, a, a, you know, these other planets. It's, you know, it's something other than just rolling around. I think it's really exciting. It, it helps. It really shows how far technology has come in the last, you know, decade or so. Mm-hmm. And, and Ingenuity is just one of, of hopefully many interplanetary uh, aircraft. Um, you're working on, on one yourself that is going to a different place in the solar system. Tell me a bit about uh, the project you're working on. So, so we're working on a, a project called uh, Dragonfly. It is a basically an octocopter. It has four coaxial heli- or rotors, so it's similar to Ingenuity, in, except that it has four different rotor pairs versus Ingenuity just has one. And uh, the, the whole aim for this mission, which is supposed to take off in 2027, is to to explore Saturn's moon Titan. So it's a very different, um, you know, air. It's so on this moon, the atmosphere is very different from Mars, and I, I think it has. A, it's really exciting from that end. Hmm. Tell me about some of the challenges um, engineers like yourself face when designing an aircraft for a different planet. If we're familiar with Ingenuity, it's dealing with a very low atmosphere, not much to grab onto, those rotor blades. Um, what are some of the challenges that, that Dragonfly is going to experience, and how are you kind of working to engineer around this? So 
I, I guess the the challenge are challenges are is basically one it has to work right you don't want to send everything out there or any you know an aircraft out there and it not to work it's not like flying a helicopter here you you know maybe it fails the first time you send a mechanic out to fix it that's not going to happen out there so so making sure we have uh, fail safe is mechanisms um, that that's a real key component so we think of why why do you have you know most drones you think of they have their quadcopters so dragonfly has it has this coaxial quadcopter configuration or eight rotors specifically in case you have one failure um, it, it can still fly if one of the motors fails kind of a thing I, and as long as two motors don't fail on the same uh, pair I think it should still be able to fly um, so, so those are some of the challenges but the other challenges is that the whole scale the whole atmosphere it's flying in um, so it is a heavier density density than the atmosphere on Mars that makes it very much more much easier um, on the other hand it is oh, we also have less gravity so that makes it easy, that's favorable to flight but on the other hand it, it the atmosphere is a little bit tricky in that what we had expect. So we had just published a paper. So it's a visual based um, guidance. So it's looking through imagery and other kinds of um, visual based uh, mechanisms to see where it's going to fly and, and so forth. So we are actually studying. We just published a paper studying how potential for condensation in the rotor downwash how that could potentially affect the vision of the vehicle. So, so our study basically indicates, so I don't know if you know, um, have you ever been in an aircraft and you can, during takeoff and landing, you could sometimes see this tip vortex at the very tip of the wing and it gets to very low pressures and creates a little mini cloud of water droplets in there. So, so that's one thing that we've been looking at recently is ensuring that those water droplets don't create a cloud under the, under the aircraft and, and basically ruin its ability to see during different flight conditions. Right, because if, if you're able to fly on, on Titan, that's great. But if you're not able to collect any data or images, it's, it's kind of a wash, right? You, you want to be able to, to utilize this, this machine. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all atmosphere. It's a day-dependent kind of a thing. And it would set basically limits on, okay, if, if we have this kind of humidity on this day, we, we know that we're going to be able to see when, during our flight. Mike, how are you going about testing this? I mean... You obviously just can't use a prototype and throw it on a rocket and send it to Titan and see if it works. <laughs> how are you? How are you doing all of this modeling to, you know, just see what to expect when when Dragonfly gets to Titan? So, in general, we have a pretty good understanding of how aerodynamics scale. So, for example, the scaling laws that we've applied to aircraft on Earth. Actually, we understand how to apply them to submarines underwater, right? And, and, and those scaling laws, when applied to Mars, is a little bit tricky because they have very high Mach numbers or the sound speed's very low. But when we apply them to Titan, it's actually relatively straightforward. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that we're just applying scaling laws or, or just basically our understanding of how aerodynamics changes with different um, flight speeds and, 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 and densities. Um, we also have 
well, not us, um, NASA, they have test facilities that, that have an ability to get quite close to the temperatures and the, the, the same conditions that we expect on Titan, with the exception of gravity. Um, one, one of the other things that we use is a lot of modeling and high fidelity modeling. That, this is where I'm working on mostly is um, high fidelity modeling, where we model all the detailed aerodynamic interactions. So we're able to actually capture how the rotor downwash interacts with the body and, and, and start coupling that kind of behavior to controllers so we better understand you know, the control system, how the vehicle responds with respect to what it's measuring and so forth. Mm-hmm. And this is all computer software modeling you're using? Yes, yes. That's that's my part is using computer software modeling. Yeah. Gotcha. So so what you, you said you're looking at this downwash thing. I mean, what are some of the other challenges that you know you're hoping to model um, you know, before this, this thing heads to Titan? What, what are some of the other issues that could possibly pop up on this mission? Yeah, I, I, that, from that end, I'm glad we have a planetary scientist because they, they study everything. And uh, it's kind of fun because they're things that, you know, I don't normally think about when I work on my day-to-day stuff. But, you know, for, for example, we're looking at aerodynamic designs, how um, some of my colleagues at um, our collaborators at Penn State, they're, they're looking at how to improve and make a rotor design that's not going to vibrate or arm designs that aren't going to vibrate. Um, and lead to, um, you know, early failures or fatigue. Um, some of the other stuff we're looking at are, some of the stuff I'm looking at here at UCF is more in lines with uh, how, do you, how do you design the body so you get the furthest range? How do we, how does a downwash from the rotors interact with things like soil? Because um, th- this aircraft is one of its first landing sites is going to be in sand dunes. And we have to worry... Not necessarily worry, but we, we, we want to understand how it's going to kick up dust. Is that potentially going to damage devices? We also there's also kind of interest in kicking up dust with the, the, the rotors to see if we could actually make measurements on what the soil character looks like. We also have to worry about landing and takeoff operations. What kind of complicated airloads happen? How does it change when you land on a slant versus on straight ground? Um, uh, another thing that we're, we're studying is the condensation effect. Let me think of, and then the last thing is, 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 is basically how do you, how do you uh, transition to flight? So when this thing is in a parachute, how do you get it out of this aero shell and actually start flying versus, you, you know, that, that's kind of a, a complicated event that you have to worry about is, is how do you get this thing to separate from the aero shell and, 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 and fly in a very smooth way that, uh, that reduces concern and so forth. What are you taking from the Ingenuity mission, if, if anything, um, and applying it to, to this mission? Are you kind of looking at some you know, basic practices or lessons learned from, from NASA's Ingenuity and applying it to Dragonfly? How's, it, how's the kind of workflow working? So I... I would say one key thing is it's just a success on their end really helps pave the way for us, right? If, if things were not successful, it would be, it, it's always hard to come back from, from maybe an early failure. So I think from that end, I, I think that's huge for us. It makes it very much more smooth sailing going forward. Um, 
one of the challenges, so as I mentioned before on the scaling behavior, um, so, so the, the whole scaling laws and the character of how rotors behave in low, low density, low sound speed behavior is so different than the problem that we have on Titan where the density is very heavy and the sound speeds very relatively fast. It, it, in, in part, it's similar to, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's not that similar that we could actually start extracting all that information. However, when we start looking at, you, you know, the reference frame that we are aware of. So every, we all know a lot about how helicopters fly on Earth, right? And we continuously look at what, what scaling laws and scaling behavior did we look at for, for ingenuity and how does it relate to dragonfly? We see that they're very different, but we're using those same kinds of characters. So, so one, one example would be the, the blade dynamics and how it interacts with the, the very light air versus how does our heavier blades on Titan interact with this very heavy air? That, that, that's one kind of character that we look at. When it comes to Dragonfly, you've talked about some of the papers you've, you've published. Um, what's kind of on the docket in the short term? What, what needs to be accomplished on Dragonfly you know, in the coming months uh, as we progress towards that, that launch? So it, from my end, it's a very big project. And I, I, I'm just interfacing with one or two groups. Um, so, so I can't speak for the whole mission. I do know that there's a lot of things going on in terms of, <laughs> so, so it's kind of funny, um, you know, from the aerodynamics perspective, we see all these pieces and components on, on, on Dragonfly that are made for drilling holes and extracting dirt to start me making measurements on them. <laughs> and, and from my perspective, this is, this is aerodynamic junk. <laughs> And, it, uh, it, and I, I think I had that on a slide, and one of the one of the key scientists took a snapshot on it and sent it all to his other collaborators. And and that's kind of the the main challenge, if you think about it, is how do you interface what the scientists want with what what's needed to make the thing fly? And that's always a big battle between everyone. Um, but but I would say that this is kind of uh, you know in the short term, it's really identifying all the different components that are needed, the measurements that are needed, and readapting to the aerodynamics to, to help suit that. Um, and it's always a battle because it, things will change very quickly and and it continues to change quickly. But 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 we're starting to, to kind of hone in on, um, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a set configuration. And once we have that, I think, I think we could start really refining and understanding all the, the, the details of the flight envelope that we really have to worry about. We've been speaking to Mike Kinzel. He's an assistant professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at the University of Central Florida, and he's working on the Dragonfly mission, a mission to Saturn's moon Titan. Mike, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Brendan. And we should note UCF is a financial sponsor of this podcast. Still to come, an aerial observatory gets a new set of eyes. Are We There Yet is back in a minute.
You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. A flying telescope is getting a new pair of eyes. The Sophia Observatory is a telescope that flies into the stratosphere on a modified Boeing 747SP. It's getting new detectors that allow it to study magnetic fields in distant galaxies four times faster than its current rate. So what does this mean for astronomy and the future of the observatory? Dr. Margaret Meixner is the director of Sophia Science Mission Operations at University Space Research Association, and she joins us for the latest. Dr. Meixner, thanks for speaking with us. Oh, well, thank you, Brendan. Thanks for having me. So it, it sounds like Sophia is getting a new set of eyes, right? Tell me about this. What What's this new hardware? Yeah, well, you know, Sophia um, has this wonderful instrument called Hawk Plus, and it maps the magnetic fields um, in galaxies and in star-forming regions. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be getting an upgrade, um, basically a new set of eyes, um, improved detectors that will imp- increase the mapping speed by a factor of four um, and the sensitivity by a factor of two. Now, what does that mean? That means that astronomers can do more and also go deeper to, to um, do harder targets. Uh, but Hawk Plus has really revealed the whole um, realm of magnetic fields in galaxies um, for astronomers and really is revolutionizing how we understand because uh, astronomers are remote sensors and so they they are basically, um, it's whatever they can detect is what they can learn about. And Sophia's provided new eyes to reveal magnetic fields for the first time. And it's it's a very important aspect of physics that control how stars are formed in galaxies, but it's really been mysterious to astronomers because we haven't had the data mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. how the magnetic field will play a role. Mm-hmm. So um, this Hawk Plus camera is really revolutionizing things because it's giving astronomers an opportunity the first time to study how these magnetic fields shape the interstellar medium. Well, that was going to be my next question. What do astronomers seek to find out by making these magnetic field observations? What, what can we learn about stars by having this data? Right. So um, just to give you some context, so there have been some prior missions. So like there's this uh, mission called the Planck mission that studied polarization in galaxies. And it showed that magnetic fields were shaping how the interstellar medium, and that's the, the cradle from which stars are formed, um, is shaped. And at the scales Planck that looked at, it looked like the magnetic fields were kind of falling along um, and shaping uh, the directions mm-hmm. um, of, of the interstellar medium. But uh, what Sophia does is it gives you a, a clearer view. So it's like, a, a, if you will, a magnifying glass. So it can get a, a more detailed view of what's happening right where the stars are formed. And that's uh, what Sophia is revealing. And it shows that as you... Um, so uh, the interstellar medium gets along, um, gets um, shaped into filaments, almost like cirrus clouds in the sky, mm-hmm. and uh, the magnetic fields sort of shape and funnel that. Um, but in that filament, um, when they, when the gas starts to compress, uh, the magnetic field basically um, halts it um, at a particular density, and so these these filaments kind of, if you will, live. Um, for a long time in the interstellar medium, but when the gravity gets really strong enough, um, it can overcome it. And what Sophia showed for the first time in this uh, publication last fall is that when it get densities get really high, the magnet, the gravity overtakes uh, the magnetic field and allows basically funneling of the gas into these things um, and and creates stars. Um, so one of the mysteries um, is like, why do we have gas at all? I mean, they should all form into stars. 
Um, but the magnetic fields really are controlling how things are happening, and uh -huh. it's the balance of gravity and magnetic fields that that determines when when the stars will form. And that's what Sophia is providing that key piece of the puzzle is what's happening with magnetic fields because uh -huh. it's been completely speculative before. So tell me a bit about Hawk Plus. How how is this hardware going to help make these observations? Right. Uh, first of all, Hawk Plus stands for High Resolution Airborne Wideband Camera Plus, and the plus is the polarization. Um, so uh, Hawk um, basically is uh, sensitive to this what we call this far infrared wavelengths. Um, that uh, if you think of the colors of the rainbow, it's beyond red. Um, mm -hmm. You go into uh, the really um, long wavelengths, and that's what I like to call where a lot of the interstellar medium is emitting light. And so it's at the most sensitive spot to make these observations. Uh, and this is really an untapped wavelength range. Uh, only SOFIA is the current observatory that can do it for astronomers because it gets way up high above the water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere. So we can't do this from the ground. You, you need to get above that water vapor in the atmosphere. Um, so that's the wavelength range. But Hawk Plus has this um, polarimeter on there and the polarization of light just like you know you're, if you have Polaroid lenses in your eyeglasses um, how you you kind of see different views depending on the angle of that uh -huh. that's what's happening with Hawk they have polarimeters in there that measure the light with different polarization angles and it turns out that dust in the interstellar medium uh, is elongated and um, interacts with the magnetic field and so these rotating dust grains preferentially uh, emit polarized light. And when you study that, you can actually infer the strength and the direction of the magnetic fields. And that is how Hawk Plus gives us this really specialized uh, data. Mm -hmm. uh, measure the emission from those grains, and then through analysis, you can derive the strength of the magnetic fields. And this wavelength range is really the best wavelength range to do it because you get the peak um, energy output from the interstellar medium, so you can get very sensitive measurements. And Sophia, as we know, it's a unique observatory um, in the fact that it flies above the stratosphere, or above 40,000 feet, to make these observations. Is is that key in making these observations with Hawk Plus? It has to be installed on something like Sophia? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you, um, you can't do this from the ground. I mean, what we have is, um, well, thankfully for us, <laughs> we have water vapor protecting us. Mm -hmm. It gives us a nice environment to live in. But that means that astronomers cannot look at the universe at these far infrared wavelengths. You have to get above that. Uh, you can go it by going to space. Um, but the, the beauty of Sophia is you can get up above it uh, on a, you know, um, a regular basis. Um, and, and make these observations. You get the stratosphere is basically above the water vapor veil, um, and then you can come down and upgrade the instrument. So the reason uh, this is wonderful is that we can improve Hawk Plus, which is what the whole purpose of this program is. We're going to improve it and make it better and faster. Is it already installed, or is this something that has to happen in the future? What what can we expect? Um, when these Hawk Plus observations begin. Oh, right. Well, Hawk Plus um, is uh, installed now. In fact, it's going to be flying this week on Sophia, making uh, measurements of magnetic fields in nearby galaxies. Um, but what we're doing with Hawk Plus is it'll be taken off um, in about a year's time, and they'll uh, be upgrading um, just the detectors on it, and then we'll put it right back on. 
Uh Um, So it's being, um, yeah, and it'll go back on, it'll be completed basically in 2023. You never thought of it that way, like that being an advantage to having it on Sophia's. You can bring it down, you can make these changes, and you can make upgrades, and you can service this thing. It's 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 a lot easier than if it's something in space, right? Absolutely. No, absolutely. That is the, the beauty of it in this whole, uh, you know, looking at new instrumentation uh, is a beautiful thing. We, we get new observations, but then we also can sort of test bed um, some instrument designs for, for future space missions um, because people can iterate on a quicker time scale than if you just flew everything in space. Sophia is just a unique piece of hardware. I've had the pleasure of flying on it. Um, it, it really is just a neat science instrument. Um, what's the future? Because it's my understanding that this is just one of many science upgrades planned for Sophia. Uh, th- that's right. Uh, so we have uh, released a uh, what we call an instrument roadmap, showing a 10-year horizon for Sophia's um, instrumentation future. Uh, this was an outgrowth of communication with our astronomy community about what new capabilities they wanted. And so this Hawk Plus upgrade is sort of the first step. Um, people have been going um, gangbusters with new discoveries with Hawk Plus. It seems like every every month we have a new amazing discovery from it. Um, but uh, because uh, Sophia has this capability of adding new instruments, uh, there's two possible directions for step two. Uh, they could go fainter, like they could get a really highly sensitive what we're calling a direct detection spectrometer that improves the sensitivity of Sophia's spectroscopy by a factor of 10. And this will enable for the first time people to measure the gas map and water vapor and water ice in uh, planetary system formation. And so we'll learn a lot about how all these amazing exoplanets that people are discovering are formed um, through these through these measurements that um, that could be made with such an instrument. Um, and then the other idea is uh, again, improving mapping speed. And so there's a, a high, re- uh, Sophia's really good at high spectral resolution. So like really uh, dispersing the light and learning about kinematics and dynamics of gas and galaxies. Um, and so we have a heterodyne instrument um, called GREAT. Um, and the idea is to um, have a future instrument that we're calling the terahertz mapper that will improve mapping speeds by a factor of 14, and you'll be able to map um, these key um, diagnostic the gas, uh-huh. how, it's, how it cools, um, how it flows in galaxies. Um, and so those are two uh, very exciting possibilities for Sophia's future, and we're working uh, with the community and with our partners uh, in Germany on how to make that happen. That was Dr. Margaret Meixner, director of Sophia Science Mission Operations at University's Space Research Association. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit wmfe.org slash space. You can also stay connected to this show on social media. Give our Facebook page a like. Search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There? It's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. 